If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. What did Roman emperors actually do all day? Were they really as bloodthirsty as legend would suggest? And why was food so important to imperial rule? In her new book, Emperor of Rome, the popular historian, author and broadcaster Mary Beard sets out to tackle some of these questions, profiling extraordinary figures along the way. Matt Elton caught up with Mary to find out more. So Mary, your new book covers a whole sweep of Roman emperors from 44 BC to 235 AD. But you start the book with, I think, one of the lesser known emperors whose story is incredible. I wondered if you could just explain who he was and why you opened the book with him. Yeah, the book kicks off with a teenager from Syria who came to the Roman throne in 218 and was assassinated in 222. He's called Elagabalus. Um, And he's not one of the greatest hits of the Roman Empire, that's for sure. But he is an emperor around whom the most extravagant stories have collected. Now, if you think that Nero was kind of pretty over the top or Caligula... You ain't seen nothing yet till you've looked at Elagabalus. The kind of things we're told about him is that he invited people to dinner, was so generous he showered them with rose petals, but there were so many rose petals that they smothered and suffocated and died. Um, he is supposed to have invented the whoopee cushion, or he's the earliest user of the whoopee cushion we know in Western history. He had people come to dinner. He sat, sat them on cushions and uh, uh, he would have slaves go around letting the air out of them. So they ended up on the floor. Um, he's supposed to have married a vestal virgin, committed human sacrifice. You kind of name it. It makes Nero, as they look like a pussycat. I started, start the book with him, because for me, the issue is not whether these stories are true or not. Right? And, you know, what's my guess? They're not true. Right? They are invented after the reign of Elagabalus in a way to, uh, to besmirch his memory. And in fact, one of the um, biographers uh, which re- recounts this even says, I'm not sure I believe all these stories myself. Um, but my my pitch is, in a way, look, it doesn't 
matter if these are true or not, literally, because they're true in another sense. They're true insofar as they represent Roman fears about what the worst kind of emperor would be like. And if if you scratch the surface of these and you think, what are they actually saying about imperial power? Well, they're saying saying things like, you never know where you are with a bad emperor. You know, when an emperor is bad, he, he can be so generous, and yet his generosity kills you. Um, you know, emperors are never what they seem, and the worse they are, the less like what they seem they are. It's also suggesting that one of the things that lies at the heart of Roman imperial power is deceit, deception, and fakery. And another great story it tells, for example, is that when the uh, people came to dinner with the emperor, if they were on the kind of bottom table, they didn't get real food, they got fake food. Now, you know, we can laugh at that, and it looks like kind of mad, capricious emperor, and there are a few other um, Roman aristocrats of whom that story is told. But in this context, what it's saying is that in the orbit of the emperor, you can never believe your eyes. Um, The emperor is always not what he seems. Um, You can't, even nature is suspended. Uh, when you're in the emperor's orbit. Uh, another of Elagabalus's tricks is that um, he uh, n- never eats fish when he's by the sea. He only eats fish when he's inland. And uh, he has snow brought into his summer gardens. Now, again, looks like mad capricious emperor, but it's actually saying at the root of Roman imperial power, the root of what's the matter with it, is that it subverts nature. And so you learn more about what people thought about emperors from these stories that are, you know, flagrantly untrue, honestly, than you think. You know, they're true in the level of ideology. And that's one of the things I'm exploring in the book. So to rewind then, um, for people who might not be familiar with what the situation was in Rome before the first emperor, you write interestingly that Rome was an empire before it had an emperor. Can you talk us through why that happened and what was there beforehand? Yeah. Um, What I try to do in the book is not assume that the reader knows the ins and outs of Roman political history before they start. I don't want to get bogged down in that in the book, but somehow you've got to have a bit of firm ground before you move on to think about Anyway, more interesting things about emperors. And I think the, the the first thing that anybody has to grasp, and it's completely counterintuitive, is that the Roman emperor inherited an empire. You know, we think, oh, Roman Empire, that's acquired and governed by Roman emperor. It's absolutely the reverse. In the previous political system, generally known as the Republic, which kind of ends with Julius Caesar, which is a sort of, I say, a sort of democracy with very sort of, there are elections, but it's not exactly one man, one vote equality. In that Republic, one of the things that happened, and which marked Rome out forever from 
almost any other Western uh, early power, is that they were stunningly successful in conquest. People have always wondered why. You know, some people think that Romans were just nastier than everybody else, but I kind of think that everybody was nasty, really. But the Romans were super successful at defeating their neighbours and expanding their territory. Until by the second century BC, long before there's an emperor, they have acquired a huge land-based empire around the Mediterranean, stretching from Spain, Spain, Portugal, uh, through to Greece and the coast of Turkey. Now, the key is that it is that enormous empire that destroys the democracy. The democracy that they have is based on notional equality amongst the elite, not amongst everybody else, but amongst the elite. And it's based on short-term office holding only. The basic rule in the Republic was that nobody holds political office for more than a year and they always share it with somebody else. There's always the top of the tree, there's two consuls and there's even more shared offices as you go down the tree. Now, what happens is that it's that kind of system which helps them get this territory, but it proves impossible to govern it on the traditional way. And they end up, long before they have an emperor as such, they end up giving unprecedented power to single individuals in order to secure the empire or to put down rebellions or to clear the sea of pirates or whatever. So this this kind of power-sharing democracy delivers an empire to the Romans, but it can't, it doesn't let them preserve it or keep it. And at the same time, the empire is destroying the notional equality of the elite because there's a hell of a lot of cash and wealth coming in, and some people are making it so much bigger than others. Out of all that, and it's from the second century BC on, there's a series of kind of prequels to emperors um, and a series of civil wars. Out of all that, one-man rule gets established. and if they, they solve the problem of governing the empire. You know, and it really is a practical problem. I mean, some of their um, some of their provinces are several months away from Rome. You know, and you, you've got you're holding office for one year. You can barely get to the province and back again, right? In the space of one year, so they ultimately Julius Caesar kind of cuts through all that and is made dictator and eventually dictator for life. And as a single ruler, then commands the empire. But it it really is a case of the empire producing emperors, not emperors producing the empire. Now, that is the biggest and in some ways kind of most counterintuitive thing to grasp in the whole book, right? But the emperors come out of an existing empire. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. 
talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Caesar is, of course, famously assassinated, and one of the people involved in that is someone who you've described previously as, I'm going to think, a particularly nasty young man who's Octavian. Yes. <laughs> can you, can yes. you explain why you think he's particularly nasty and how he became Rome's first emperor? Yeah, well, Caesar's assassinated in the name of liberty, ha-ha, by some privileged aristocrats who, whom William Shakespeare glorified, rather. And what follows is a decade of civil war in which, first of all, Caesar's supporters, notably Mark Antony and Octavian, this um, Caesar's great-nephew, actually, who was adopted in Julius Caesar's will. I mean, again, another odd thing about Rome, quite a lot of adoptions are posthumous, or at least um, they're of grown men. They're not, you know, Romans don't adopt young babies. Caesar, in a sense, made Octavian his heir by adopting him. And first of all, Mark Antony and Octavian defeat the killers of Caesar, but then they turn on each other. And eventually, Octavian emerges victorious and becomes the first emperor, changing his name to Augustus. But he is a thug, at least in the first instance. He utterly illegally, really, raises his own private militia. He joins forces with Mark Antony. He then is part and parcel of some extremely nasty civil violence, basically extrajudicial killing, and is well known to be a, you know, a violent young bloke. I mean, one story is that he tore the eyes of one of his enemies out with his bare hands, right? Now, the great mystery one of the great mysteries of Roman history, is how, after starting out like that, Octavian rebrands himself and becomes a founding father and an elder statesman and so forth. Now, some of the early violence 
might be a bit exaggerated by Octavian's enemies, but some of it certainly isn't. And this turnaround between, you know, something which would be like, you know, guerrilla leader would be making it sound too cute, actually, between that and the father of his country, as he becomes known, is mysterious. Now, it's not unprecedented in um, in world history. You know, there are plenty of other terrorists and radicals who, um, after winning the, the, the fight for freedom, turn themselves, pretty nastily sometimes, turn themselves into revered elder statesmen. But Augustus must count as, as one of the biggest and most unexplained turnarounds, because in the end he ends up ruling for 40 years. He's the longest-serving Roman emperor ever. Ah. And, and yet, if you'd seen him in the 30s BC, you'd have steered clear of him. Not only does he rule for such a long time, he establishes principles of emperorship that last pretty much for hundreds of years. Why were they so successful and what were the things that he did to change what rule meant? It is interesting and we can we can infer quite a lot of the principles that he was operating on. Now, quite how far he came with a ready-made plan. You know, he'd just been fighting civil war, he ends up back in Italy. Did he have a plan on the back of an envelope? I don't know. Probably not. And no doubt most of his immediate aims when he'd defeated his erstwhile partner, Antony, along with Cleopatra, no doubt most of his aims were to stay alive, you know, not not to have a dagger in the back like Caesar or the front. But although ancient writers do tend to suggest it kind of he was working to a template he already had in mind, he certainly somehow improvised a set of measures which lasted and... They are relatively clear, I think, to see. Partly we're helped by the fact that he left a very sketchy autobiography, but a, uh, uh, an account of what I did. And you can sort of see what's going on. One of the things that is, I think, absolutely crucial is he nationalises the army. Now, part of the problem that had emerged in Rome in the first century BC, and again under under Octavian himself, was that you had a whole series of ambitious men raising their own private legions, legions that were loyal to them alone, not to the state. And that's how that's how Octavian operated in the Civil War. He must have seen that that was a big, big problem. So what he does is he turns the Roman army away from that notion of um, temporary armies levied levied by leading men, sometimes with their own money, honestly. Uh, He turns it into a professional army with uh, limited terms of service and a retirement package at the end. And that breaks the link between ambitious and powerful generals and their troops. And he is super successful at that, but it's enormously expensive. It's reckoned that paying the troops, paying them their bonuses at the end, the retirement package, something like half the revenue of the Roman 
empire, just on that alone. But I think that's an indication of how important he saw that, that, that the army was going to be an army of the state, an army not of individual generals. That's what he makes it, and that's what he remain, what it remains. So that's one thing, and I think that's probably the most important thing. It is cripplingly expensive, and at the end of Augustus's reign, we find um, soldiers who've retirement has been postponed. And, you know, we know that in, in 21st century Britain, if you want to save money on the pension plan, you raise the pension age. And that's exactly what Augustus did, obviously. But at the same time, he keeps up a notion of conquest, Roman traditional conquest. To be Rome is to be a conqueror. He is, with the money that's left, phenomenally generous to the Roman people, generous both in terms of cash handouts and in terms of providing shows and spectacles and whatever. But also, he, in a sense, rebuilds Rome. And he rebuilds Rome, or at least, I don't mean the slums here, I mean the the ceremonial centre of Rome. He rebuilds Rome, which had been a rather higgledy-piggledy, not very well-planned place. He rebuilds it sort of in his image. He um, erects new buildings, which often have a thematic decorative programme, which kind of end up with Augustus. We have all the Roman heroes around the edge leading up to the figure of Augustus. It's as if he changed what it is to see around you in the city. And instead, he is the sponsor of it. And he also, and Julius Caesar had started this, he also floods the Roman world with his image. You know, that actually he becomes, in marble at least, ubiquitous. And he's also ubiquitous on the coins. Julius Caesar was the first living Roman to be put on the coins minted in the city. Augustus continues that so that he's in the purses of anybody who is commercially active. And it's reckoned, now this is actually not much more than a guess, but it's reckoned that there would have been something between 25,000 and 50,000 portraits in marble of him across the world. That's before you got the paintings and all the things that have disappeared. So it's a double whammy. It's fixing the soldiers changing the kind of image and hearts and minds of Rome. And also, he also, just to finish it, he controls elections. So they sort of continue, but it's only Augustus's. It's only those that Augustus wants that get elected. And of course, he's also called Augustus, you know, which is a completely made up name. And it's a bit sort of, it is a bit North Korean. It really means like revered one. <laughs> Of course, he may have been immortalised in all these paintings and these sculptures, but eventually his rule was going to come to an end. How did succession work? Could anyone become an emperor if they wanted it enough? Well, you might say that Augustus was super successful and pretty lucky, actually, in everything apart from succession planning. And that's where you see the big fault lines in the system, which go on being fault lines in the system as long as the system lasts. That's partly because he and his second wife, Livia, had no living children of their own. Livia had got a son by her first marriage and he'd got a daughter by his first marriage. But any idea that 
Augustus and his long-serving standing wife, um, Livia, should have children to take over the throne. That was, that was flouted. You know, it just didn't come off. There would be all kinds of explanations about why it didn't come off, um, but it didn't. Now, that, in a sense, sets the problem. And there is never a system at Rome which says a natural son, still less the eldest son of the emperor, will be the person to succeed him on the throne. First person to do that is actually 100 years after Augustus, when Titus uh, succeeds Vespasian. So what happens is he, a series of adoptions, a series of Augustine failed attempts to marry off successfully his daughter to potential heirs, which kind of works in a way, but none of the chosen heirs live long enough <laughs> until eventually he's left with only Livia's son by her first marriage, Tiberius, whom he adopts and who does take over the throne. But it's it's not hard to see that why imaginative historians have, Im have, have imagined that Livia was angling for the succession of her son all along and actually had a hand in the premature deaths of the others. There is no evidence for that apart from gossip. But so you've got succession is a mess from the very beginning and it's always fought over. Now, to say could anybody become emperor? Well, in theory, yes. But what we're really doing is choosing from the wider family of the emperor. And then in the second century AD, we're choosing, using again always the mechanism of adoption from a wider range of the elite. So, you know, no, it's not like, you know, um, you know, any American can dream of the White House, but it's, it's not like the British monarchy. It's not like, you know, King Charles succeeding Queen Elizabeth. So is it the case that the emperor became a more diverse figure as this period goes on. And do you think some of that diversity is obscured by the fact we quite often refer to statues that it all seem quite similar? One thing that happens, and it's been a feature of the Roman Empire, actually from its origins, is that Rome gradually incorporates into full Roman citizenship and power people from its from its empire. So the idea that you had to be an Italian to be powerful was not really true in the even the age of Augustus. But it gets more far-flung. So you find, particularly when you get to the, uh, the wider issues of adoption, you find people being adopted um, into the Roman hierarchy, of the imperial hierarchy, they made heirs, who first, like Trajan, come from Spain, um, and then his successor, Hadrian. And later you have Septimius Severus, who is born in Libya, and uh, Elagabalus is um, from a Syrian family who is descended from Septimius Severus's Syrian wife. So as the Roman as the elite of the Roman Empire becomes more diverse, so the diversity of the person on the throne increases. 
And you're right, I think it's, you know, you go to a museum now and you go past loads and loads of white marble Roman emperors and it gives you sort of the impression that they were white emperors. Well, some of them were. Um, but some of them were... had. Some of them were not like that. Has been much debated, you know, exactly what ethnicity Septimius Severus was, but certainly not, not pale, pale white, and pale male stale. No, certainly not that. And that might have looked different when the marble statues were painted, where you might have been able to add, you know, different skin tones, different characteristics. But now, you know. It's easy to fall into the trap of thinking that um, all Roman emperors were white. You mentioned there Elagabalus, and we open by talking about his particular macabre story. But you also make the point in the book that it's important to see these uh, individuals as being hardworking bureaucrats in many senses. What work did they do and how hardworking were they? Some must have been more hardworking than others. I mean, part of the, the uh, kind of pitch of my book, though, is that while we tend to see them in terms of individual psychopaths, usually, you know, that just doesn't make sense to understand the Roman Empire in these terms. I mean, it cannot have been governed by a series of psychopaths. It would not have survived. But the question then is, what work are they doing? I think they are different, but they're probably more similar. You know, the job, the job description is the same in... 10 BC and 210 AD. Now, some of them are better at doing it than others. Some are conscientious and some are teenagers. You know? But Marcus Aurelius said when he was looking back at his predecessors, you know, writing in the second century, he said, look, it's, you know, Roman imperial power or imperial power in general. It's the same play, just a different cast. And so there are some jobs that have to be done that every emperor has to do. And one of those is answering begging letters, answering petitions, receiving reports from Roman governors, Roman leaders. And the emperor's post bag must have been enormous, right? And they're sometimes on matters of great geopolitical import, sometimes they're about lost cows, you know. So there is no doubt that somebody in the royal palace is signing off these letters, is dealing with these questions and signing off as the emperor. Now, what we don't know is how many of those letters the emperor actually dealt with himself and how many were written by office juniors. I mean, we know now that if we write to the prime minister and get a reply, it wasn't written by the prime minister. And much the same must be the case. But when Romans imagine the emperor, they imagine him, you know, with his red boxes, they imagine him um, adjudicating legal cases, dealing with problems. They see him with a pen in his hand as much as having sex in the swimming pool. We should talk about sex in the swimming pool. What do we know about the private lives of these emperors? We're told a lot. It's a bit like as with Elagabalus, I think. Quite a lot of it is projection. You know? And we, we do that too, you know. How do we imagine the life of royals, you know? Do we imagine really, and this would go down perfectly in Rome, does King Charles really have his toothbrush spread with toothpaste by a flunky 
Or does he do it himself? We like to imagine, you know, it's so different from us that he has a toothpaste spreader. And so you've got a really unfathomable mixture here. Some of some of these stories might be true. Some of them might be exaggerations. Some of them might be wishful thinking. Some of them might be invented or adapted after the emperors died in order to damn them. There's been, uh, you know, one emperor's been assassinated, a new emperor has come to the throne after the assassination, thanks to the assassination, and what does he do? Well, he and all his entourage, who were probably quite in with the old emperor, start to say, God, he was a bastard. You know, do you know what he did? You know, and he, he threatened to kill the consuls. And so it's very hard, though, to work out, out of all those stories, which is the truth, which is the hostile commentary, which is the imagination, which is the fantasy. But as with Elagabalus... An awful lot of them point you to thinking, what do we want an emperor to be? That's great. And so they tell you, even if you don't believe them, and I, I don't care very much if I literally believe them, how would we know? But whether we literally believe them or not, they help us into the mindset of how the Romans thought about their emperors. And that, I think that's what's crucial. You also spend some time in the book thinking about food and about eating as a site of power and I suppose almost danger, but also the things it says about the emperors. Why did you choose that theme and what does it what does it tell us? I think it's a very familiar theme in part. You know, we've all watched movies about ancient Rome in which they're all lying down and saying, pass the dormouse, Marcus, and um, getting a bit too pissed. And I partly wanted to come in with that familiarity and to show how in part it's right but in part, there's much more to it. And in Rome, as in most societies, communal eating is where you see you know, hierarchy both displayed and eradicated. You know? We know if we go to dinner with somebody posh, in a sense, we're very flattered because that's putting us, you know, we're sharing his table. We also ride down the bottom and he's at the top, right? Uh, so we're not sharing his table at all. And uh, that's why, in a way, the stories about emperors serving fake food to the, the really most lowly guests actually just enact that. But there's other reasons, I think, that, that make eating and where you eat terribly interesting. First of all, we can still visit the dining rooms. You know, we can actually sit on a place that Nero had a dinner party. And dining room's very distinctive, so you could go to the remains of a Roman palace and you can identify the dining rooms. You don't know what half the rooms were used for, but the dining rooms you do. So, you know, that's great. And also you can see the Romans thinking about that, uh, uh, the place where the emperor meets some of his citizens, the usually the more upmarket one, but also where his power is challenged and on display, but contested. And in a way, the dining room is, is as I say in the book, it's kind of a bit like the cliché crime scene that the country houses in, you know, in, in modern British crime fiction. You know, where are you going to get killed? 
their dinner party. And you know that because there's all these food tasters around who are not tasting the food to see if it's good enough. They're tasting it to see if it's got poison in it. And so it's a place of suspicion. But it, the other thing that really got me into this, because I'm interested in emperors, but I'm also interested in what happens below stairs, and I'm interested in the ordinary people around the palace and outside it, is that you got a very good idea of the people who were serving these dinners, um, the cooks who were making them. You can see their little hierarchies, and there are wonderful tombstones of imperial cooks where they say things like... Um, I'm not just a cook. I am the archimageros, which means I'm the, I'm the chef de cuisine, right? And I'm not just a food taster. I'm the food taster manager, right? And so you start to see within the enslaved economy and in all its dreadfulness, you start to see the people who are making these dinners possible. And one of the things I want to do in the book is, you know, remind people that, you know, monarchs don't rule alone. They rule on the backs of and with the help of any number of other people. And actually in Rome, we can see some of who those people are. And it reminds us that Rome was a society that was based on slave labour. And you see that very vividly. I mean, very vividly indeed. And the thing that struck me, which hadn't struck me so much before I started writing this book, was some of the apparently trivial commodifications of the slaves. I mean, you know, it'd be a cliche to say, oh, the slave is a commodity, etc., etc. Well, where that came out to me was in the number of times I came across where the emperor, say, or sometimes with other people, but the emperor would give a slave as a present to one of his friends. And in a way that, for me, was almost more chilling than the stories of physical violence and cruelty, awful as those are. It was the kind of sense that the emperors were being praised for sort of putting a ribbon on a human being and giving him to somebody else. And I thought, that's where you see the sharp edge. You know, it's not just in the whipping. It's in the, what does a slave think being given, you know, being given as a present from the emperor to you know, somebody you didn't know? Awful. You end the book by saying that writing it has opened your eyes to the politics of the modern world. I wondered if you could say a bit about how it might have done that without naming any particular individuals oh. or their misdeeds, I suppose. No, I'm sure. I mean, I think that I went two ways, and I think I think this about modern politicians too. On the one hand, writing the book made me hate autocracy more. I thought this is a system in which and everybody is engaged and involved in a fiction, a fake, you know, even the emperor, you know. He's the one person who no one will ever tell the truth to. So I, I thought, you know, I thought I felt more distaste for autocratic power. And at the same time, I felt a bit more sympathy on an individual basis for the ordinary bloke who was on the throne. And I, how do you do it? You know, I've, and how do you live in a culture in which... There is no truth. And I felt more sympathy for all those caught up in it, you know, not just the guy at the top, but for everybody right down at the bottom. And I suppose it's taught me a bit or made me think slightly differently about modern politics in this country and elsewhere. I mean, I think that um, it's, you know, I, I can do an analysis about the hypocrisy of the British political system 
you know, the the soundbite, the untruths, you know, not just the lies, but the, just the systematic untruths. But I can also sort of have a sympathy for the guys and women who are caught up in that, who, you know, they didn't go into politics to, um, to be part of a sham facade of untruthfulness. They probably went into politics, or most of them did, to try and make things better. And, you know, in a sense, we're all implicated in their problems because we don't ever let them off the hook. We don't ever let them make a mistake. Um, we're there, me included, on our social media, trying to out them and cancel them. And I sort of felt a little bit more sympathy for them as people while decrying some of the structural, deplorable aspects of British or American or probably any big modern political system life. And at least the one thing you can say, however, and this has got to make us pleased, is that we've got the ballot books and we've got the general election and we can vote the buggers out. And if we choose not to, that's our problem. No one could vote an emperor out. And of course, one of the reasons why it all looks so bloody is that there was only one way of solving the problem in the ancient world, and that's death. So, you know, we're in a better position and we should perhaps use our democratic rights more enthusiastically. Do Roman emperors have a lesson for us today? <laughs> I think they help us to look more sophisticatedly and nuancedly at what power in its exercise means and whether how we judge people in power. You know, what counts as a good emperor? Well, in some ways, nothing. You know, I'm not going to say there's a good emperor out there. Um, but we, we should look, I think we should just look a bit more carefully and perhaps have a a little more nuance and a little less unthought out outrage. Outrage is fine. Unthought out outrage ain't. Are there any emperors that you admire most? No, I think they'd all be horrible, really, in our terms. You know, and you know, the traditional answer to that would be someone like Vespasian, a uh, good bloke. You know, down to earth. None of this, uh, none of this ridiculous luxury stuff for him. You know, workaholic. You know receiving embassies on his deathbed, etc. And, you know, that's, it all looks fine. He's still an autocrat. And anyway, why do we think that about him? Well, he was the first emperor to be succeeded by his natural son. And that Titus, who succeeded him, had every investment in making Dad look good. And he succeeded. That link between assassination and re reputation is fascinating. Was that the single factor that made a difference to your legacy? Yeah, well, most difference. I think, you know, we, we have tended, I think, and me included, I'm saying, you know, modern readers of Roman history have tended to be a bit naive, I think, about this, because they assume that, you know, let's say, Domitian was very, very nasty and horrible, and therefore he was assassinated. And, you know... Nerva came along afterwards. Well, you could spin that. You could say Domitian was assassinated in a palace coup, and most of them come from inside the palace. 
and it was in the interests of Nerva and all the rest to spread the vile stories they did about Domitian. Now, we don't know which is right, you know, and I think it's always a bit naive to somehow pretend that these monsters were nice, really, you know, because, as I say, none of them were nice in our terms. But it's always useful to remember that good men and bad men are assassinated. That was Professor Mary Beard. Emperor of Rome, Ruling the Ancient World, is out now, published by Profile. And you can find a version of this interview, along with a whole host of other interesting historical content, in the November issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.